how wonderful it is once again and as always to gather in this place of worship to describe in more than just this one verse of the gospel that we know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that we describe with many, many words and many, many songs and many, many tongues and languages from many, many people the glory of our God. Would you join me for a moment of prayer? Lord, you sent your son into our world, your world, that we might not be condemned, but saved. You sent your son that we might be saved by water and spirit, by faith and baptism, by love and sacrifice through him. Your son was sent to be a teacher to Israel and continues to teach the whole world, but still has time for us. We come before you and in this space weekly because we long to be born from above, born of water and spirit, that you may inhabit our thoughts and fill our actions, and that the spirit may lead us in shaping your kingdom here on earth. We come here ready and willing to open ourselves to your transforming grace, to be taught and to be changed, to be teachers of the law and leaders of what we know on earth, coming before you on bended knee at night as children before you, ready to learn and ready to receive and understand the path set before us as Nicodemus came at night before Jesus to learn. We long to follow the path of God and be shaped in our ways to better reflect who and whose we are. Give us minds to comprehend, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear and mouths to profess that Jesus is Lord in whose sacrifice we have been born again into your new creation. Send us ready to testify to what we have seen and proclaim the good news through all the earth that whoever believes in your son shall not perish, shall not be condemned, but be saved and have everlasting life in Christ. Walk with us, shape us, living God, redeeming Savior, and transforming spirit. Walk with us. Amen.
Filled with gratitude, filled with gratitude here in worship for the presence of God among us, 
grateful for the object of our devotion, thankful for these ministers of music who have shared so capably and so fully and invited us all to be a part of this experience of worship where in some way the promises of God and the reign of God are made known in a special way within the church as the church worships. Today we're going to be reading familiar excerpt of Scripture from John chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be reading a longer section of that, 17 verses. And what I've found in working with churches is that by the time I get to the 14th verse and it's the same voice, people start to check out. So I asked Mackenzie to come and divide this reading up so that we could continue to hold our attention all the way through the longer line of this, uh, this story. This encounter with Nicodemus in so many ways speaks to the search that many of us are on. So hear the word of God. Chapter, uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen but still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. In him. For God so loved the world that God gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. And thank you, Mackenzie. Over the last 25 or 30 years, one of the most impactful movements in American Christianity, uh, for better and for worse, and that has had a formative impact on our churches, is that of seeker sensitivity. And the idea of seeker sensitivity is basically that by offering the right blend of music and sort of a lighter touch of spiritual uplift, that the church be a more entertaining place, 
then the churches would be able to attract seekers into the community life to make deeper commitments to Jesus. And in the season of Lent, many of the stories that we'll be reading from Scripture are going to be talking about those who are seeking. Many of them are from this gospel, the Gospel of John, where Jesus stands face to face and engages, in one way or another, various types of seekers. Today, it is a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you probably know, is a religious leader, and he's a seeker. He wants to find out about Jesus. He's probably not your typical seeker. If we were to look it up in the modern dictionary, he's a very learned person. He's a member of the ruling council there in Jewish religion called the Sanhedrin, this council of elders that was at the center of religious and social and political life. I suspect he was also brave because Jesus was not popular among the ruling authorities of the day. And so to seek out Jesus and to engage him took courage. Maybe that's why he came in the middle of the night. And when he comes to Jesus, he is seeking something. He approaches Jesus with a certain amount of deference. Rabbi, teacher, he calls him. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. No one can do the signs that you do apart from God's presence. And from that place, we would expect Jesus perhaps to approach him with a certain amount of seeker sensitivity. But that's not the case. Instead of meeting him in superficial, shallow waters, Jesus immediately dispenses with all of the, of the cliches and jargon and invites Nicodemus into a deep journey. A journey to probe the mysteries and the depth of God and God's work in the world and God's work in Jesus. And so we hear now Jesus inviting him from the outset to be born again. Born again? It's a remark that must have left Nicodemus completely bewildered. He was a good Pharisee. He was raised in Jewish tradition, and he was raised in all the rituals and all of the faith. As far as he was concerned, he didn't need a whole lot of help. He needed the right sort of wisdom to help him calibrate his sensibilities so that every step he took would be more and more faithful. And Jesus tells him he has to be born again. How could it be that he wouldn't even be able to witness or perceive the reign or the kingdom of God unless he's born again? And you all are sophisticated enough to know, and you've probably heard enough sermons or teachings on this matter to know that the Greek word that's translated here, born again, also has another translation, just as valid and just as important for today. And that is you must be born from above. And in this pun of being born again from above, I think Jesus wants us to be embedded just like he wanted Nicodemus to be confronted by the power of that call. You must be born again and born from above. Jesus intends, I think, both of these meanings, a sort of rebirth that can only come from above. 
Nicodemus, I think, is sophisticated enough to recognize as he asks the question, how on earth can I be uh, you know, crammed back into my mother's womb and be born again? He recognizes that Jesus is speaking about a great metaphor. He's using a symbol to talk about starting all over. And just like those women in Mark's gospel who flee the empty tomb in fear in the face of resurrection, I don't think it was simply reactive fear. It was a fear that was inspired because they realized that the resurrection might actually impact them because it's true. And all of a sudden, in the face of the empty tomb, they realize everything that Jesus had called them to was now being called forth in their lives. Yes, they were afraid. Yes, Nicodemus is indignant. Start over? A clean slate? But that is what Jesus is calling out of Nicodemus. He's saying, in a sense, this is not now about you. And it's not about your ideas, and it's not about all your highly developed and sophisticated doctrines or your spirituality. Nicodemus, you have to start all over again as you meet me. And that is not what Nicodemus expected to hear, and it's not what he wanted to hear. He stumbles over that response from Jesus, I think precisely because he knows what it meant for him. How is it going to affect my walk in day-to-day life to have to set down all my preconceived notions and to begin to seek out a very different way of being in the world? Jesus persists very truly. I tell you, Nicodemus, no one will be able to enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and being born of spirit. What is born of flesh is of flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is spirit. And now Nicodemus must be a little grateful because he's given, Jesus has given him something he can hang on to, water. And there were plenty of rituals and celebrations in Judaism that used water. Cleansing rituals, outward expressions that symbolized a sort of inward cleansing. And he probably knew about that prophet named John out in the wilderness who was inviting people into the water in the River Jordan, a baptism for the forgiveness of sins there in the wilderness. And Jesus now says, there's more. John had already foreseen this. He said, after me comes one who will baptize with water and the Spirit. The Spirit. That's the means by which our physical baptism has any meaning at all. In and of itself, the waters of baptism have no significance beyond their impact on our body. It is not enough as we engage on this spiritual road seeking an encounter with the living God. No, that which is born of flesh, Jesus says, is flesh. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. And as human beings, we have grown accustomed to understanding so much that we don't have is coming quite naturally. Sometimes when you're born, eventually, you learn how to eat. And you learn how to walk. And you learn uh, how to make your way in the world. You learn how to talk. There are finer, more refined levels of capacity that we have. We might be able to learn to read. We might be able to learn to write. 
some of us, with enough practice, can refine our skills to do something like play the harp, which is an amazing thing. But all this comes by way of natural evolution and our application of ourselves to a task. But what Jesus is now sharing with Nicodemus is that there's no evolution or human development toward God that doesn't first begin with a revolution or a re reworking of our very heart, our very center. And so it's not first about just sort of finding the right teacher, learning the proper technique. It's not about reading the perfect book. It's not about discovering some unknown secret no one has ever known before. It's not about engaging and manipulating folks in a certain kind of worship. Jesus is saying that there is no way from here to there where God is that begins from a point of origin in our own lives. That which is born of flesh is flesh. You need the Spirit, Jesus is telling him. And then he makes it even harder to comprehend. You need the Spirit, but you don't control the Spirit. It's like the wind, he says. It's utterly free. You didn't choose to be born the first time and you will not control the pace or the pattern of your own spiritual rebirth that you're seeking. It is out of your hands. And whatever happens in your spirit is a radically gracious act of God that comes out of the freedom of God's own love. And all of this is very disturbing to Nicodemus. And it probably disturbs us too because we like to control things. And we'd like to think that at the end of the day that we, like Nicodemus, know something about how to fix our own condition. But it is when we are at the end of our rope. It is when we reach the end of our knowledge. It's when we're in the mess of all of our sins, and in the muddle of our helplessness. It is when we are most vulnerable that we finally discover the trustworthiness of God. And we can find ourselves resting there. And so it doesn't begin with our knowledge, our experiences, or any of our ritual efforts. The labor route in which our new lives are born is located in that same place of utter helplessness that gives way to trust. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to bring this very learned scholar and sophisticated seeker from the Sanhedrin to understand. He's trying to lead him to that labor room of new birth. And if Jesus had stopped there, he and we would be endlessly disappointed because it is impossible for us to contrive our own birth. It's impossible for us to bring all of that into action. Jesus doesn't stop there. He plunges now into even deeper waters with him. And he offers a picture that is almost impenetrable. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, he says, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Ascent and descent. What does that even mean? The whole point of this chapter, 
The whole point, I think, of the Gospel of John is to tell us the story of how Jesus descended. That He is the Son of God sent to us from heaven by God. And if Jesus' descent from heaven is possible, then that makes His ascent and our ascent with Him possible. And so the road is built from heaven to us. And not the other way around, as much as we would want to make it so. And this is the bottom line. That Jesus' ascent in the Gospel is very different than we could ever imagine. That ascent, the very first step in that yellow brick road, begins in the most improbable place. And that's why Jesus talks about Moses in the wilderness. A story from Numbers 21. Nicodemus surely knew it. And if you haven't read it, it's verses 3 through 7 or so. Basically goes this way, that Israel in the wilderness had grown rebellious again. And so God sends a plague of poisonous snakes that bite the people, and they fall sick, and they die. Moses intercedes in the face of God, and then God tells Moses to do something very strange. He's told to cast an image of one of those poisonous snakes in bronze and to hoist it really high on a pole for everyone to see. And everyone who looked on that snake would be healed. And so the malady becomes the cure. The, this means of judgment, the snake, also becomes the means of salvation. It's a weird story. But now Jesus reveals a deep meaning that's hidden in that strange story. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. And whenever we run into that phrase, lifted up in John's Gospel, he isn't talking simply about the physical act of hoisting a cross or a snake off the ground. It's also the very same word that's used over and over again in the Bible that we translate exaltation. So when Peter is preaching, for instance, about Christ's ascension, he says he is exalted, he is lifted up to the right hand of God. It's the same word. And so here in the Gospel, Jesus' ascent, his exaltation, his glory, begins there with the torture of being lifted on the cross. And so he says, when I am exalted, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. That glorious ascent into heaven that Peter could see and vividly preach about began about 10 feet off the ground on a cross of wood and nails of iron. And by God's grace, that instrument of torture radiates a glory that draws the world unto himself. And so we have to ponder what that means for us when this condemned and naked Jesus is nailed on the cross on display to the whole world. It's more than a picture of human cruelty as much as it is that. It is now the fullness of human failure 
and sin on full display. And Jesus says it's the poisonous snake when we view it that represents the worst of the world that's killing us. And when Jesus is lifted up on that cross, he is also that image that brings healing and salvation in that very obscene place called the cross is also the picture of all that we could ever need to begin our own journey to revelation of the true God. And so we can see ourselves and our lostness, our sinning and our rebelliousness. We can see the snake that's bitten us all, but he assures us that because God truly loves us, there is hope, there is salvation, there is a way out. It is the beginning of Jesus' ascension to heaven, and it is the beginning of ours. From the cross, Jesus takes us with him. No longer sinners, but reconciled to God Almighty. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that so whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so I'm here to tell you all today, as we begin this season of Lent now in earnest, as we focus our lives to the joy of Easter to remind you that it is a journey that takes us through the cross. And whatever it is that you seek, whatever it is that you are seeking, and you've come to church believing we have something to offer, I want you to leave with the assurance that God has written a love note to you in these words. That God has drawn you close, that nothing can separate you from the love that has been forged in Jesus Christ with God Almighty. And by lifting the Son on that cross, he has borne all of our failures and our shortcomings and our sin and our shame. And what God asks of you now is to trust in that act of love and allow your lives to be made new and begin a journey on a new path. It takes a lifetime. Why is it that we have to be reminded of it, even at funerals? How many times do we sing some of the most familiar songs at funerals? Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. I'll never forget a friend of mine, a colleague here in Durham, when he was diagnosed with cancer, was texting me, kind of right in the middle of worship, because by that time, he was receiving chemotherapy, and he wasn't in the pulpit. And so, about 11.04, he was texting me. And uh, he said, I hope things go really well today. And I said, I'm praying for you, thinking about your friend. And um, was sitting kind of where 
where Keith and, and Mary Martha were, and I just had this vivid image of the cross, and I said, I'm just starting here today. And he said, that's the only place any of us can start. No matter where we find ourselves in the course of our life, it is possible to be able to declare it as well, it is well with my soul. Even Nicodemus, we don't hear anything more from him until the very end of John's gospel. We learn that Nicodemus finally took a stand beneath that cross. He's among those that lovingly and gently disengage Jesus' hands and feet from the boards, and they take his broken body down. And then it says, Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about 100 pounds. It was a sign of faith. It was a token of gratitude. It was the first kind of outward expression that he had grasped as a grown person, newborn in God's kingdom, what all this was about. And in that damaged body that was taken down from the cross, that seeker found what he was looking for. Or maybe it was there at the cross that he was found by the one who had been looking for him. I don't know what you're seeking, but when we gather in this place, we raise our heads to the difficult vision of a God who has suffered and given all that we might know now and forever of a love that does not fail, of a care for your soul that will not abandon you, of a strength in the face of trials and of death that will not wither. It comes to you individually, it comes to us as a church, and it is a promise for a world that God so loved. As we respond today, Take a look at your own life. Consider the road you're on and ask who built it. And if your honest answer is, this is the road that I made for myself, then open your eyes, open your hearts, open your lives to the Jesus who enters in and from this point of departure invites you on a road all the way home to God. Receive that gift. It will make all the difference. As we open our hands, as we open our hearts, and as we receive the gift of this handbell chorus, don't take the opportunity to have this personal encounter with God for granted. It is a gift. Amen.